Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. If you're a regular listener, you might be wondering, what's with the new opening music? Well, if you're a listener from way back, you might recall that it was our original opening music, a song called Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe. Now, we moved away from it a while ago in favor of a sort of a mellow jazz song called Low Pressure that, well, I seem to like it a lot more than most listeners. Now, once that became abundantly clear to me, we just scrapped opening music altogether. But for the new year, I thought we might try bringing back the old theme. So what do you think? Should we go with Love the Government as our theme? Though I know if you're a conservative listener, that might be difficult. Maybe, I don't know, you can look at it as sort of an ironic title or something. Uh, Should we have no theme at all or maybe do something else? I don't know. Anyway, let us know. We'd really appreciate it by emailing us at mail at politicsguys.com or commenting on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Thanks. And now on to today's show. With me today is a special guest, Beth Silvers from Pantsuit Politics. Beth, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, you know, and when Beth and I were, were talking about what we'd be talking about for, for this episode, I, I asked her if she'd be willing to sort of indulge me. I have these ideas, some of them might be a little radical, I don't know, uh, about Changing the changing the Constitution. Uh, I teach a course on American political institutions. In fact, I'm getting ready to teach it this semester. And one of the things I always do at the end of the course, I ask the students, well, you know, if you could change anything in the Constitution, what would you change? Make a case for it. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds like it'd be a good basis for a conversation because I got some gripes with the Constitution and uh, I put together some thoughts, some ideas for things. And uh, uh, I thought it would be great to run them, run them by Beth and we could have a little discussion about them and kind of see where that goes. So, uh, Beth, thanks for thanks for indulging me on this. And uh, if you're ready to go, we'll get right at it. I am now. I do want to say, like, you teach this class not very far from my house, and I would love to be a fly on the wall and listen to your students at the end of the semester. Uh, I'd love to hear what your students are thinking about this. We do have some. We do have some really interesting conversations about that. That that's for sure. At this part of the class, it's my favorite part of the class. So I'm really looking forward to this. So, in, in no particular order, uh, here, here's my first my first suggestion: is dramatically increasing the size of the House of Representatives. I mean, like doubling it. And what why is that this would really shrink the size of the average district. And in my view, and if you a lot of people who are actually advocating this make for uh, a much more representative Congress, because right now we're at right around a little over 711,000 people per congressional district on average. And when you think about what the framers intended at the beginning, that that was one to 30,000. That's I mean, now we couldn't get back to those levels. That would mean over 10,000 members of the House. That would be ridiculous. But, you know, for a lot of our history, Congress would actually enlarge the House after essentially almost every census. And this took place until with a piece of legislation called the Permanent Reapportionment Act of 1929. And that's when they set it at 435 members of the House. And at that point, what 435 members of the House meant was 
average congressional district size of around 280,000 people. And now we're at way more than that, over 700,000 people. So that's kind of where we're at today. And, and Beth, I mean, do you think that's just crazy on the face of it or, or what do you think? You know, Mike, as I was reviewing uh, your list, I had this initial inclination that I needed to come up with a pro or a con about every single thing. Like I need to endorse these ideas or fully reject them. And I'm trying to resist that urge and be open to this idea in particular, because I don't know how I feel about this. I like that there's precedent that Congress initially was increasing the size of the House. So it's not like this is something that um, is a is a modern convention. It's more that the modern convention was to stop increasing the size of the House. So as a conservative, that that historical perspective is helpful to me. Yeah. I, I like the idea of more responsive districts when I think about what are the positives of that? You know, does that make it more available for people to run? Is it possible to run a campaign for less money than you have to now? And could we get a more representative government just in, in terms of the type of people for whom these opportunities are open? I think that's an interesting possibility. I think it's an interesting possibility to say, what would this do to the power of the parties? If you have a lot more people do you open the door for districts to send more Green Party libertarians, you know, folks to Congress who could actually build some coalitions in a larger framework? Or would this increase the power of the parties? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. And, you know, I think those are great points. And on one end, you might say, well, and this is kind of my view is, well, it would make it more representative, more dynamic. But would it make it too chaotic? And, I, you know, that's a reasonable concern, I think. And so. What I did is I looked at what other sort of uh, rich, developed countries that are kind of like the United States uh, have done with their legislation, what their lower houses are like. And, and, and what I found, for instance, Germany in their lower house, they have 700, 709 members. Uh, the UK has 650. Italy has 630. France has 577. And so certainly going bigger has been done successfully in other countries. But what, what else I found, and this to me was particularly intriguing, is all of these countries that I looked at, I looked at maybe around half a dozen, is that the ratio tended to be around the same. It's districts of around like one to, oh, say, 100, 115,000 people or so. And again, that's, that's way different from what we're at, essentially. And, and now, that would probably be unrealistic for the United States, given we have like 300, almost 20, 326 million people that would require, I don't know, geez, uh, thousands of members for our house. I'm not going to do the math in my head. But but to me, those international comparisons can be useful because they give us a sense of what is actually you know, possible, basically. And so a lot of those larger legislatures tend to be rowdier than our House yeah. of Representatives. So I think you would introduce some chaos. I'm wondering what this would do in terms of polarization. So in addition to the question of whether this opens or closes third party doors or fourth party, fifth party doors, I don't know the answer to that. The other thing I was thinking about when I was reading your notes, Mike, is whether this helps or hurts the fact that we tend to elect a, a number of extremists to the House mm -hmm. in a way that we are, are a little bit better about in the Senate. And gerrymandering is obviously a component of that. So the way you draw these districts matters and the way you draw the new districts would matter. But even assuming that you draw the districts in a way that really makes logical sense on a map, we so sort ourselves 
in terms of neighborhoods. Yes. Um, you know, we polarize ourselves. And I don't know if a smaller uh, group to which representatives are accountable helps us with that. The, the one way in which I think maybe the current configuration is more representative, especially if you assume that we address gerrymandering issues, having a larger body of constituents theoretically should lead to more moderating forces mm-hmm. in the House, right? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. There, there were a lot of Obviously, the devil would be in the details here, and there are a lot of other factors that go along with this. And you could certainly envision a, a, a situation where this might actually make things in some ways more polarized. And, and is it possible for Congress to be even worse? I don't know. But, you know, maybe. So, so you're absolutely right about that. So uh, that there are there could be some potentially unintended consequences. But from what, I, from what it sounds like, it's not something that you would say is necessarily a crazy idea. No, I mean, I think it is, I think it is important to be responsive to population change. And the fact that we sort of shut that down in the 1930s at a time when we were probably not um, our best selves in terms of our capacity for decision making, given where the economy was, um, I think it's worth having this discussion. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, Well, you know, there's a, a related idea I have, and this one is, I think most people would say is definitely somewhat more radical. Um, And this is to, double the size of the Senate. And so we'd have a hundred, uh, we'd have a hundred additional senators. And I would say we would distribute these based on each state's percentage of the national population. So kind of making the Senate a little bit more like the house. And, and here's my reasoning behind this Uh, in 17, back in 1789, Virginia was the most populous state. The smallest state was Delaware. Virginia was around 11 times more populous than Delaware. Now, today, California, our our most populous state, is over 69 times more populous than Wyoming. And so what that means is that, in essence, uh, uh, California in the Senate gets much less Senate representation, way, way less than, say, Wyoming does. And so my proposal would wouldn't entirely change. It wouldn't make the Senate a carbon copy of the House. Smaller states would still have a disproportionate share, but it would at least redress some of that imbalance. But my brief, for instance, back the envelope calculations, it would mean that California would end up with a total of 14 senators. Texas, a you know, traditionally Republican state, at least recently, would have 10. Florida would have eight and, and so and so down the line. So that's definitely more radical, I think most people would say. What do you think about that, Beth? I do have a harder time with this one. <laughs> so people who listen to Fancy Politics know that I, I describe myself as like political gazpacho. I am, I am not a traditional or what people in 2018 think of as a, as a hardline Republican or, or even conservative. And so I think my answer to this is going to illustrate why, because I have a conservative answer for a progressive reason. Okay. <laughs> um, I like the Senate as an equalizing force among the states contrasted with the House um, for a lot of reasons. And one that is becoming increasingly important to me is climate change. And when I think about disaster relief and the importance of the Senate in terms of disaster relief, when I think about what happened with Puerto Rico and how the situation in Puerto Rico might have been different in life-saving ways if Puerto Rico had two senators, sitting alongside the senators from all the other states, I think it is really important 
that the states remain on equal footing um, in one of our two chambers. So I am interested in increasing the size of the Senate only insofar as I think Puerto Rico deserves representation there. I think Washington, D.C. deserves representation there. But for the purposes of really ensuring that we have that tension um, between kind of population and geography, which I think is going to be more important even in our lifetimes, I think it's already becoming more important. I would like to see the representation by state remain equal. Well, yeah, I, I was that, that's a really interesting rationale and that wouldn't have uh, necessarily uh, occurred to me, which is why it's good to have these conversations. Uh, I guess, you know, I, I see what you're saying. I guess I feel that I agree with you, but not to the same extent, right? Because mm-hmm. my proposal would keep that tension, but it would definitely lessen it, obviously, you know? And so, and that, that, that to me, sounds like the, the crux of the problem you have. It, it wouldn't be enough of that individual state representation for those type of issues, basically. Yes. I really value the, the federal system in terms of states remaining on equal footing, even with population differences. And I'm sure we'll get to that when we talk about the Electoral College as well. Um, and so in the Senate, I think that's important. The other aspect of just doubling the size of the Senate to me is that I do think the Senate, and, and I think it's done a poor job of this in recent years, but I do think the Senate is intended to be a relationship-oriented deliberative body. And I think its committees are are supposed to be working committees where people really know one another and roll up their sleeves and get things done. And just from a a human resources kind of perspective, I think growing the Senate too much would undermine some of those efforts. You know, I certainly agree that at least historically, the Senate has been somewhat like that. not not so much in in recent in recent years and and while I would like to entirely blame Mitch McConnell um I can't entirely blame Mitch McConnell you can <laughs> blame, blame him a lot I I'm okay with that <laughs> I, I I blame him a lot but but also you know as a, as a political scientist I tend to I, I tend to try to avoid personalizing things and looking in terms of kind of larger more sweeping kind of impersonal forces so. I will blame a lot of just larger forces, polarization and the modern media and that. But yes, I think Mitch McConnell, certainly I never pass up an opportunity to blame Mitch McConnell when I can. So so there we go. Um, but uh, but, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the Electoral College. And so I'm uh, that is something I want to bring up because I have, as you know, an Electoral College proposal. And this is this is something that a lot of people actually have gotten behind. And that's just doing away with the electoral college. And it seems to me Beth, that, you know, the framers intended the electoral college primarily as at least a potential check on the people. But there's no question in my mind that it just doesn't even remotely work like that anymore and really hasn't uh, essentially forever. Uh, and, and, you know, I can understand where back then just the logistics of doing a national vote would have been daunting. But I think today, actually, it's something that we could we could certainly do. Um, and, and to me, this is much more sort of a democratic process. I mean, I think a lot of folks intuitively say, well, the person who is president of the United States should be the person who got the most 
votes of the people and the people should elect the president, not the people voting in the states or electors who elect the president. So it sounds to me like I'm going to get a little bit of pushback from you on that. So I'm looking forward to hearing your response to that. I continue to value the Electoral College, even though I think it has failed us from time to time. Okay. So I think just as a general principle, this is how I feel about the Senate as well. Um, the fact that something is that, that the fact that people are not exercising the power that they have in service of our country doesn't mean we should remove that power to me. And so I like the idea of maintaining as many checks on on problems as we can. I think the country would have been served in our last election by the Electoral College stepping up to the plate. Um, to preserve a, a healthier sense of our democracy. Now, I know a lot of people, especially on my side of the aisle, are going to disagree with me about that. But I, I think it is important for the Electoral College uh, to be in place and to be populated by people who are occasionally willing to disregard the will of the popular vote. I also think, again, in terms of, of states, you know, recognizing that states have more power than they sometimes exercise is important. We can't foresee every eventuality. I'm worried that a pure popular vote in the presidential contest will further presidential campaigns as corporate marketing um, enterprises instead of people campaigning for office. I, I know it's frustrating that Iowa, for example, really gets to know these people as human beings. But I think there's something really valuable about Iowa getting to really know these people as human beings. Now, I am open to changes in the process where the voting order changes up, um, where we periodically evaluate electoral votes based on population, electoral college votes based on population. Um, but I think there's something important about the state as an entity casting this vote for the president that is worth preserving. So then you wouldn't necessarily be opposed to a change in which, for instance, states disregarded or went away from the winner take all model, which some states actually, I mean, in Nebraska do it by congressional district. So that sort of thing would be something that maybe could potentially uh, preserve some of what you see as valuable in the electoral college, but, but I mean, would be, you know, kind of address at least potentially some concerns that people who people have about the legitimacy and, and, the, and the people having that kind of voice. Absolutely. I fully embrace ranked choice voting. I would love to see that in our presidential contest. Um, I think our first pass the post system is not serving us well. And I think we would feel better about an electoral college vote deviating from a popular vote if we had more information about what voters wanted. And so um, I would I would like to see some changes made in the way we vote for president. I just am not ready to eliminate the electoral college. Yeah, I, you know, you mentioned ranked choice voting. Uh, I, I got to say, I think I'm a big fan of it as well, though. I think one of the big sort of practical considerations is people would be would struggle, I think, probably to understand how it worked. But I think if we can get that message through people would see how it actually is far more legitimate than this plurality type of thing where you can have presidents, you know, people winning with, with, you know, less than the majority of the vote. And, and I just think it's by far a, a better system, but that initial hurdle to overcome uh, can, can be a, can be a significant one though, though not insurmountable. I mean, there it's, 
it's being experimented with at the local level in some in some places. So it's certainly certainly possible. And I'd love to see more of that. There are a lot of demoralizing aspects to the way our presidential um, campaigns happen now. And I understand those. And I don't want to pretend there isn't a problem because I do think there's a problem. And one of those problems that I think ranked choice voting would really help solve is the sense that if I vote for someone other than one of the major parties nominees, Mm -hmm. I am going to be blamed by everyone forever for having done so. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But I'm not allowed to vote my conscience in a case where I'm not happy with my two choices. And I think ranked choice voting would really start to open doors for new ideas and for independent candidates, something the country says it wants. Right. We have more people who identify as politically independent than ever in our history. But our voting system doesn't provide any mechanism to say so credibly. And that's what I think is really an important next step in the evolution of the way we elect president. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's one of the frustrating things whenever I I talk about these sort of things with with students. It comes back to the same thing. And they get frustrated with me. I say, but the catch 22 of this is that we have this two party duopoly that has very little interest in changing a system that is incredibly beneficial to the two-party duopoly. This is why, you know, competition is a good thing and monopolies are bad because the Democrats and Republicans in many ways, uh, you know, uh, act like political monopolists and they don't want to give up their their control, their, their, their hold on power because, well, why would they? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Yeah, you know, we've been talking about a lot of voting uh, type things. So let's 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 stick with that. Um, and again, I'm probably I don't know if this is even more radical, but I think it is pretty much more radical. And this has come up on uh, on our show for uh, a few times now. And that's the idea of mandatory voting, which I actually like with certain caveats. And that's I, I sort of like how it's done along the lines that, for instance, Australia does it. Um Whereas it's not required for for you to actually vote for anyone in particular, but basically to just show up and turn in a ballot, even if you don't fill it out, essentially. So it's a it's a requirement to essentially be there and participate. And, you know, this kind of mandatory voting isn't just a few countries. It's uh, 27 countries, uh, which is around 13 percent of all countries now. What happens when you have a system like this? I think Australia is a great example. Their turnout tends to be around 90% or higher as opposed to the U.S. turnout, which is way lower than that. I mean, oftentimes in midterm elections, under 50%. And it's not like if you don't vote, you go to jail or something like that. In Australia, the fines range in, in U.S. dollars from $14 to missing a federal election to $57, again, in U.S., the missing a state election. And also they have voting on Saturday, which to me is way more sensible. Um, and I think there are a lot of really positive benefits to that. For one thing, a lot of my fellow political scientists who looked at that have found that mandatory voting gets people more engaged in the process. They learn more about issues and candidates. And I think that's a really good thing. And secondly, I think a higher percentage of turnout means that we're going to have elective that's more representative of a country as a whole. And also, I think it makes the winners, it gives them more legitimacy, essentially, in that if, you know, we're saying almost everyone's voting, 
that seems a lot more legitimate to me than if we're, you know, 50, 60 percent. So I think there are a lot of reasons to move toward a system like this. Uh, uh, Beth, what are your thoughts? I think this is an interesting one. I am in favor of things that we can do that increase voter turnout for sure. And I think voting on Saturday makes a lot of sense. I think that coming up with a national holiday around voting during the work week would be fantastic. Um, I love that. Uh, I think it's Australia where they have like barbecues, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a really, com- it, there's a community feel to, we all go and participate in this way. And I think that's important. I worry a little bit about mandatory voting being a tax on folks who struggle with transportation. And, you know, we, we still haven't made voting um, something that requires almost no skill to participate in, right? The, the way that you register to vote, that, that you have to show up somewhere and do it. Um, there are life skills that you need to vote in this country that not everyone in our country has. And so I don't want to, A, be punitive toward people who don't have those life skills. And B, I don't want to encourage people to just randomly vote to avoid a fine that would feel pretty significant if you're in the category of folks who don't have those skills. So I have concerns about it being mandatory, but I love the idea of having a real conversation um, in our country about how we can encourage more people to vote, give them tools, make it easier, make it more secure in that process. Um, as we think about foreign intervention in our interference in our elections, um, I, I think we do need to, to take a fresh look at how we vote. Yeah, and yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that, certainly. And, you know, and I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for that more conservative, at least you tend to hear it on the conservative side, the argument that, well, do we really want more uninformed Votes And of course, we don't. I mean, certainly, uh, but we want, you know, more educated voters, more people who are actually making informed decisions. Uh, and but, but I don't think that the answer to that is saying, well, let's make it really difficult to vote. And that will screen out the people who don't care enough. I think that's sort of a, a, a short sighted way to go about things. Um, I completely agree. I almost wish we could have like Oh, a week. I'm going to sound very European now and not at all conservative, but I almost wish we could have like a, a national holiday week where people could participate in community activities that educate them. And it culminates in the act of voting, because I think it's such a shame and does such a disservice. You know, I'm, I'm conservative because I believe in local problem solving, but most people don't know anything about their local elections and it's very difficult to get good information. And so local elections tend to be decided by things like name recognition and ballot placement. And that's a real disservice. So my interest is how do we get more people wanting to know about those local elections and having the freedom in their lives to invest that time to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I think oftentimes why a lot of these things are like mandatory voting are resisted in particularly the United States is that we tend to focus much more so than most other countries on what our rights are as citizens. And we don't often, I would argue, put a whole lot of focus on what our responsibilities are as citizens that can, you know, ask not what, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, sort of, sort of idea, essentially, in paraphrasing, uh, you know, President Kennedy. And to me, that is something we've sort of disastrously gotten away from. And this ties into one of my other proposals. And, and uh, this is something that folks have raised as well. So it's not entirely out of the blue. But an idea of having 
mandatory national service and maybe even including sort of tying national service to some sort of voting or enhanced voting rights. And that, that's, that, that's a pretty big ask. It's a pretty big demand. But I think this could be helpful in, in a lot of ways. For instance, you know, we talk all the time about polarization and division. And one of the great things I would argue about having a, a draft when we did have a draft is it put many people into situations with folks who were entirely different from themselves. I mean, I, I was I was in the military and I wasn't drafted, obviously. I'm not that old, but that was an experience for me that was incredibly eye-opening and that exposed me to so many different people. And and I think that can be extremely helpful uh, uh, in, in terms of polarization. And, and you know, I, I just think that idea that we have an obligation to our country as citizens is something that we really need to push. And, and this could be a way to do it. And, and maybe as an incentive, maybe not make it mandatory, but say, well, you know, people who put in a certain amount of national service get, I don't know, an extra vote maybe. And that sounds maybe crazy, but certainly it's a way to way to emphasize how important doing something, giving back to your country is, as opposed to just saying, well, what have you done for me lately? Which seems to be the, the common view. So uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Let me start where I agree. I, okay. I strongly agree that service would enhance our participation civically and that we need to enhance our participation. I struggle with tying that to voting, but I would be open to, here's what I would like to see if I can tweak your proposal, Mike. I would love to see, uh, I would love to see the laboratories of our states work with this idea and think about uh, debt forgiveness or um, tax incentives to participate in service programs. And I think those service programs could certainly be done um, in partnerships between states and the federal government. And I think that some choice because I really believe in people kind of following their gifts and the issues that that sort of break their hearts. So um, foreign policy is not going to be for everyone. There are plenty of ways that we can serve in our communities. I think we ought to be able to, you know, look at healthcare versus um, education and, you know, really kind of follow our personal pursuits. I think that this could be an excellent way to develop more adult education, which I think is critical, especially in states like Kentucky that have depended on coal in our economy for so long. So I think this is an idea where if you really studied it and really tailored it to the needs of your individual state could be something that solves a lot of problems with one swoop. I would just rather it be um, a carrot instead of a stick. Yeah. And and I'm I'm more interested in tying it to economic incentives than voting rights. No, I, I I see I see your point there, and, and you know when when you were saying that it occurred to me that we have well we've experimented with things like that, and the program that I'm thinking of is the uh, student loan forgiveness for essentially a decade's worth of service, public service. Although the problem with this program, as we've seen, because now the the first people who were eligible for it after the law was passed have just become uh, able to get that forgiveness. It turns out that it's almost impossible to actually get the forgiveness because the program was so convolutedly designed and so administratively difficult that almost no one's actually getting the forgiveness. No one knows if they actually qualify. And it was written in such a way that 
basically, it seemed like if you just worked for any sort of nonprofit at all, you would qualify, which is, you know, potentially a problem. And so I think we at least done a little bit along that path, but it was a pretty blunt instrument and pretty poorly implemented, certainly. And maybe a key to getting this right and and making it work is to keep it fairly localized. I mean, maybe this is an initiative that counties ought to be working with. What would it be like if Boone County, Kentucky said, we're going to implement a service program? It's not mandatory, but if you participate, you're going to get a break on your property taxes. And here are the eligible organizations and here's how you sign up. And we're going to do it for the next three years and see what happens. I mean, I I think that um, could be something that really enhances community um, if administered well. And if it was done, you know, in a small enough way that it could be adapted. Yeah. And of course, it would require some sort of uh, long, long view related county commissioners and, and types like that. And and given given at least what I've seen in, in Hamilton County uh, in Ohio, where I live, that's sometimes in in short supply, especially given all the, you know, the fiscal constraints that so many counties are under. But but I agree that maybe trying something like that at a more local level might might be uh, might be a, an interesting way to go about that. Like it's back to our um, our need for greater participation and education around local elections. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely yeah, no, no question. Well, one more election thing I, I have. And uh, I know conservatives are going to hate this one. I'm going to throw it in there, though, because, of course, on the left, especially progressives, this is sort of a has been a rallying cry. And that is an amendment that essentially allows for uh, caps or various restrictions to be placed on campaign spending, basically a constitutional amendment that would uh, overturn. Citizen, the Supreme Court and the Citizens United and also FEC or Citizens United versus FEC and Speech Now versus FEC. And now I should point out, I'm not calling for a constitutional amendment that would limit or restrict campaign donations. That would be, for me, too radical and too restrictive and not the kind of thing that belongs in a in a constitution, but just an amendment that would give Congress the ability to pass that sort of legislation. Which, if it chose to do so, and of course it has in the past, and the Supreme Court's overturned it. And so, my argument would be: let Congress have the right to do that, given all we know about the links between campaign donations and policy outcomes. And then, if the public didn't like that, well, then they could go ahead and elect, a, you know, different members of Congress, and so it wouldn't lock us into anything. So, that's my sort of semi-radical thinking about about campaign contribution, uh, campaign contributions and a constitutional amendment. What do you think? Well, first, I want to acknowledge my agreement that we have a problem here. Okay. You know, I I think um, I think too often as conservatives, we try to argue about the existence of a problem instead of arguing about the appropriate solution. So I don't I don't want to fall into that trap. I I want to acknowledge that I think it is a, a dramatic problem that so many people, as soon as they're elected to the House of Representatives, spend, uh, you know, more than the majority, more than half of their time um, fundraising for the next election. I, th- I think that's a significant problem and one that we need to solve. And I think it's wrong that it is a barrier for so many people to get into races um, because of how expensive it is to run, especially because of the influence of, of political action committees and super PACs. So I agree with the problem. I also think that there is innovation happening around this issue that 
that might help us avoid the need for a constitutional amendment and avoid the need to get to the question of whether money is speech, as the Supreme Court um, has has been considering. I think that I, I really have to hand it to some of the freshmen, very progressive members of Congress who have said, you know, I'm going to record my conversations with lobbyists and make this a transparent process. Yeah. Because and and I think that that's great, um, both in kind of exposing the ugliness of some of it, but also in exposing some of the value. You know, our system does depend on subject matter experts, and if we want the Congress to be occupied by sort of ordinary people, that we have a citizen government, we need lobbyists to help mm-hmm. inform their decision making. And so, I think being more transparent on a voluntary basis that definitely going to put pressure on their colleagues to do the same is a really innovative way to tackle that problem. I also think that um, the 2016 race is an illustration of how Citizens United um, taken to the, the darkest place it could go doesn't really work. Because if you look at a candidate that I was really excited about, Jeb Bush, he raised all the money in the world, didn't matter. And so, um, Sometimes when I have this conversation about Citizens United, I think, gosh, I feel like we're we're trying to solve a problem that is so complex that just doing away with this decision doesn't really get at it. And greater transparency might really get at it. Well, you know, I, I admire, applaud uh, those efforts as well. And, and I admire your optimism on that. But <laughs> my my suspicion, my fear, I guess, is that what's going to happen is that these freshman members will find that this is not going to be practical for them going forward if they want to get reelected. And eventually those promises are going to fall by the wayside. And given the short attention span of most of the public, that's going to be OK. I mean, I've heard this from people coming in saying we're going to be more transparent. We're going to open up the process. And then once once it becomes a non-issue of Hulk moves on to something else, everyone forgets about it. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's going to happen here. I hope I'm wrong. I always hope I'm wrong with this stuff because I think that would be the best way to tackle this. You're right. And, and, and I think you're also right saying that just doing away with Citizens United won't be enough because the problem with, with money, I think, is, you know, money's like water, right? It's going to find a way into the system. I understand that and appreciate those arguments. And so you can't just focus on a Citizens United type thing. You have to have a broader strategy, essentially, and, and that alone wouldn't do it. I think it would be a part and, you know, I think it'd be great if, it, if transparency would work. But I've just been very disappointed with with transparency attempts in the past. It seems like they've just failed, unfortunately. I don't disagree with you about that. And on the more pessimistic end, the other thing I would say is, Let's let's say that you found a way to to seal off politics from money to the greatest extent possible. Human beings always invent some kind of currency. There's always some kind of of power that gets created and doled out and then um, exercised in terms of influence. And so there isn't really any getting around just individual integrity in some sense, but can I offer my own proposal for Please shaking do. up yeah, our system? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, and I know this seems counterintuitive, but I am inclined to lengthen the term for House of Representatives members oh, okay. because I do think two years is too little time. One, to just get educated about what, how, how to be a member of the House. Um, 
But especially given that it almost instantly puts these folks back into campaign mode, I think that's really unhealthy. I think America needs a breather from a lot of our campaigns. And I think the reason that we keep reelecting incumbents is because we don't have enough space to really think about the next election and plan for it and, and assess incumbents' performance in office. And so I almost wonder if a four-year term for the House wouldn't help get at some of the objectives of folks who are so interested in overturning Citizens United. I, I actually like that proposal. Um, I think that I think there's a lot to recommend that. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. And I, I count me as a cautious supporter of that one. <laughs> So I feel I've just got one more uh, one more thing, and it has nothing to do, at least directly, with elections, and uh, it, it has to do kind of with one of the uh, one of the uh, ramifications sometimes of our presidential elections, and that is appointments to the judiciary. Uh, you know, one of the most one of the biggest things a president can do, of course, is appoint people not just to the Supreme Court but to the federal courts in general, because those appointments have, you know, can be in effect for, well, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, sometimes even more. And you can really remake a lot of, of government by doing that. And so I really think a, a wise change to our system would be uh, having 20 year terms for all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices for a number of reasons. For one, you know, if you notice, presidents tend to almost always try to find the youngest possible qualified people for these positions, and in part because they want to have as many years as possible. Well, you make it 20 years and all of a sudden it opens it up to maybe slightly older folks, uh, maybe not you know, a lot older, but at least someone older. Not only that, but it gives us a little more turnover to, I would argue, make sure that the judicial branch is more in line with the country on these things. And I think that's important. Uh, I think it also means that there'd be less concern about unfit judges kind of hanging on. And we've known in the past, we've heard from former clerks long after the fact that sometimes the judges just kind of lose it and they just kind of hang on essentially. And sure, there's impeachment, but that's a real kind of radical thing that we don't want to do. Um, and then finally, and this might be one of the most important things, it would give us a lot more predictability. So we would know when these judges would be coming up and it wouldn't be these incredible incredible fights out of nowhere with who's going to get to a point coom. And I think it would make it much more, much less of an issue. And I think that would be a good thing. So for all those reasons, I would love to see 20 year terms. That's what do you Let me think? Let take you through my thought process. Okay. <laughs> Let me take you through my thought process as I considered this proposal. I think this is a hard one. Um, I, I acknowledge, um, the outsized influence that the court has, the Supreme Court particularly has right now, but all federal judges really, I think that they have a much greater role in our democracy um, day to day than they were intended to. Um, I do believe in the judiciary as a co-equal branch of government. I just think our legislatures have abdicated a lot of their work in favor of the court system, and and I that concerns me. I also share your concerns about judges hanging on past points of um, real qualification to be on the bench um, and that we are appointing the youngest people possible in an attempt to ideologically influence the court in improper ways. So I, I again, acknowledge that there are problems that we're trying to solve here. My concern with a 20-year term is I'm, I'm not fond of the idea of judges on the bench thinking about um, how their decisions might influence what's next for them personally. Mm, okay. Or, or not even thinking about that, but that 
actually happening, right? You roll off your 20-year term and suddenly you have an opportunity because of the way you ruled on a particular case. I, I think there are ethical issues that are really difficult around that. Um, not that that happens not at all today. You know, certainly there are judges on lower courts thinking about getting to higher courts and that influencing them. So, so the career of an individual is always going to come into play in some respects, but, but I worry about the possibility of a judge thinking, well, you know, what my 20 year term is up when I'm what 62, I'd like to work another 10 years. Um, because we know that lawyers in particular don't retire early in life. You yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> it just hang out part of that profession is being being a lawyer always because it becomes such a part of the identity. So, so I worry about that. And I was thinking, okay, let's say that I'm a person who has appointment power. I'm going to be the president for a second, and I have that concern. So my incentive then is to appoint older people and much older people. Um, and I agree that there's some benefit in in appointing people who are experienced and who have more life experience. I love the idea of kind of our elders, you know, being important jurists in society, but you never know what's going to happen um, in advanced years for anyone. Sure, right. And sure. so then you trigger the other side of that equation. And so I just find a number around that difficult. Um, and, and so, so my next, thought, Mike, was, okay, if I want to implement Mike's proposal, then maybe what I do to address my concern is create some kind of pension program where we're going to pay the person for life, but they're not going to be on the bench for life. And let's pretend I have an idea about how to fund that. So I'm going to take the funding concern off the table. That to me then feels like a real recipe for cronyism, right? Sure. I'm going to give my buddy yeah. a 20 year stint on the district court bench as a thank you. And he can't harm America too much because his term is limited. Um, but then he's going to get paid for life. I mean, that doesn't right. seem great. Yeah. So I think this is a hard one and I don't have a lot of good answers. One thing that I have thought about with both legislators and judges is some kind of periodic assessment of competence. Um, similar to what we administer to all kinds of people who work in federal government, but mysteriously not to the people who have the most power in federal government. Um, I, I do think we need to be looking at whether people are still capable of exercising their obligations in office um, from time to time. Yeah, you know, that, those are some interesting objections and some that I hadn't, hadn't thought of at, at all. But, you know, and it occurred to me when you were talking about your kind of ideas on this is that one way to maybe sort of limit my proposal and deal with some of this would be to, for instance, uh, make it only apply to the Supreme Court and then impose some sort of a fairly stringent lobbying ban after a person's term. Because, of course, the Supreme Court in and of itself would be such a, a pinnacle of success that you could, you know, reasonably limit that as opposed to limiting all federal judgeships. And that might be more doable than making it apply to all federal judges. I don't know. It's a hard thing because you you care about these individuals. It is a it's a strange phenomenon when a former Supreme Court justice comments yeah. on something happening politically at all. Yeah. And it and stranger somehow than having former presidents. It's 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 an odd thing when someone uh retires from the bench. And so how you grapple with that, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That is rough, though. I think we probably both agree that there's got to be we would like to think that there's some way of of getting around just these awful 
divisive, horrific confirmation fights that just seem to be so focused on power politics and party control that it just seems like it shouldn't be that shouldn't be the way, you know? It shouldn't be the way. And what I tell our listeners often is if you are tired of the Supreme Court having so much influence, you need to get more interested in your state elections because the really divisive issues that we worry about Justice Ginsburg hanging on for, for example, Mm -hmm. are originated in states that want to push back against previous court rulings. And if more people participated in state elections, I imagine that we would be electing more moderate uh, state legislatures and not having attorneys general ready to go litigate in the court about things that have been previously settled. Wow, that's that's a great point. I like that. Well, I think that about uh, that about does it. I, I'm, I'm flat out of proposals, but I'm sure I'll come up with more stuff. Thank you, Beth. I really appreciate you uh, joining me today to talk about some of this. Thanks for having me, Mike. And I'm serious about wanting to come observe your class at some point. <laughs>